The chair is Dr. Andrew Parasoliti, who is the editor-in-chief of El Monitor and former executive director of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, U.S., as well as the corresponding director of the IASS Middle East and the former foreign policy advisor to Senator Chuck Hagel, now Secretary of Defense. Dr. Andrew Parasoliti, would you take over and start now? Take over. Okay, we'd like to um, begin our panel, so if you'd be uh, inclined to have a seat, I'll introduce our panelists and we'll get started. As uh, uh, David mentioned, I'm the editor and CEO of Almonitor.com, and we're a media news organization that deals with the Middle East and in the Middle East. We have two... Um, really interesting panelists here today. Uh, directly to my right is a Commodore, retired, Abdul Latif Al-Muhim. He is columnist for Arab News and Al Yom, and he's a retired Commodore in the Saudi Royal Navy. Welcome. And we have uh, Steve Clemens, and Steve is editor-at-large at The Atlantic and senior fellow for the New America Foundation. And let me just say, uh, we were given some questions uh, in framing our opening remarks, and we're going to be brief in, uh, in our opening presentation and begin a conversation and then uh, take some of your questions via cards. And some of the questions that we were asked to address were the following. How, regarding the Arab world as a whole, do American policy decisions affect U.S. media perceptions and or do media perceptions affect policy decisions? How have such negative perceptions curtailed what might have been or prominent policymaking input and comment by Arab Americans and Muslim Americans? And how with such examples as post-Mubarak Egypt, pre-invasion Iraq, uh, Hamas's electoral victories in Palestine, periodic arms sales to Saudi Arabia and or pictures of children victims of serious civil war, can the cultural misunderstandings between Americans, Arabs, and Muslims be decreased, and particularly within major parts of government interactions? So those are just some of the framing questions. I've asked our panelists to speak for 10 minutes or less uh, to start, and uh, we will begin with uh, Commodore Abdul Latif. Can Steve, do you want yes, to go first? Yes. Yeah, sure. The, the, the question of want and, and uh, uh, wanting to go first, and it is, first of all, it's great to be with all of you this afternoon. I know we're at the tail end of a long conference, um, and it's a pleasure. You know, I was, um, I'm sensitive to the fact that this is a, a panel on, on Arab media, uh, and so I decided that my uh, uh, opening admission today, I don't know if any of you have been following the controversy over national security wonk. Uh, this is a big thing. This is a uh, undercover guy that's been tweeting. Many of us know him uh, in real life, uh, but I'm one of the people who have been engaging him uh, both positively and in awful ways over the years uh, over Twitter. Uh, so I was going to finally admit that I've been living a double life too as an Arab journalist. Uh, and, and you probably haven't seen my name out there, but I'm out there. So um, I just wanted to try to grasp some legitimacy for being up here today. <clears throat> in any case, um, I thought we're going to have time for discussion going through things on whether uh, perception drives uh, 
policy or media can drive policy or policy driving media. I, I, and, and I look forward to that discussion. But I thought I would give a broader um, and maybe a, a slightly deeper take on what I think is driving some of the things we heard from people like Prince Turkey yesterday and, and really gripping the region. I feel like to talk about whether media is driving results or, or, or policy is driving the media in a way is shallower a discussion uh, if you look at the, the question of whether there's something truly tectonically different that's occurring uh, in the Arab region today and in terms of the U.S. interaction and place with the world. These are much deeper questions. And so while you might try and fake it, you know, I think the White House uh, and the Pentagon and the State Department are out all the time looking for good tweets, good articles in El Monitor or the Atlantic, but they don't matter in the end when it comes down to the deeper structural shifts. Um, like my colleagues on the panel, I've spent a lot of time uh, in the Middle East as, as an amateur, as somebody who comes along, you know, talking to people on the streets, cab drivers, you know, folks in the hotels, uh, uh, restaurants, whatever. And it is interesting to me to see how widespread the sense of American decline and American disengagement is. And what that means to many people in the Arab world uh, creates a great deal of diversity. So I'm reticent about talking about the Arab media in any sense as a monolithic arena because there's such a um, massive change. Perhaps it used to be more monolithic today, but when people are beginning, I think, in mass to look at the fact that the relationship that they had with the West, including Europe and the United States, is fundamentally shifting. Some are trying to grasp and hold that old relationship in place, partly because it's what they've known and because their interests are uh, benefited by that. Others are anxious and excited to see the decline of the former colonial powers that have engaged in patterns of humiliation and uh, 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 with the region as some see it. And others are waiting to just see what comes next. And as many people know, conspiracy, conspiracy theories uh, often run rife through the region. They also run rife in other parts of the world as well, but they certainly do uh, in the Middle East. And so there's quite a bit of diverse um, uh, views and thinking. I'm sorry? Oh, yeah. Um, in any case, I see them seeing the tethers of American engagement in the region slipping, uh, the plates in a tectonic sense shifting and moving. We can go back in American history and look at the shift from Taiwan to the People's Republic of China to look at another time when you had relationship shift in substantial ways and people trying uh, to hold on to what once was, being uncertain about what was coming next and filling the void with lots of conspiracy theories uh, about what might be in there. And there are other historical examples too that we could discuss. But in this changing, you know, in, in, at least in the perception, if not the reality, I happen to believe that there's some truth uh, to the perceptions in the Middle East. Um, there are new winners and losers and that the age of predictability uh, of U.S. engagement in the region is, is largely over and done. We have now an ad hoc engagement. We have coalitions of the willing. We have coalitions of the unwilling uh, lately, uh, particularly in Syria. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, I think that, that in that maelstrom of uncertainty, you're going to get quite uh, a lot of of perspective, and so the Arab media scene, as I read it and try and read it regularly, uh, is rather rich, um, with with lots of different perspectives. And frankly, there's more debate going on inside the Arab world among Arabs about their future than I've seen before, uh, because of the changes in difference. Whether that's over Syria, what, now there may be tribal lines that still draw a lot of this, but even if you look within the camps. 
um, whether it's Sunni, Shia, uh, and, and more deeply and specifically tribal, there still seemed to me a great uh, deal of diversity of perspective. I look at that in the long run as healthy. In the short run, it looks chaotic. Um, you know, I think also if you were to go into um, Europe, I wrote a piece about two years ago, uh, three years ago, where I said if you want to look and measure uh, American decline in the world, it's very hard to do it because if you listen to presidential candidates, no one, no politicians, no one can ever talk about these kinds of issues very openly and candidly. But if you looked at our relationship with four allies, and I outlined Saudi Arabia and Israel, and Japan and Germany. I picked the four countries for specific reasons. Japan and Germany were satellites of American interests within their region, both uh, largely destroyed and beaten by the United States in World War II. Very successful nation-building efforts set them back up, and they largely carried our water uh, in, in policy issues for a long time. So they were vital. You would expect that the, that the tethers that controlled them to be in place for a very long time. And in my book, at the time I wrote the piece, you could look at the very different behavior of uh, Japan and Germany as a measure of the void they felt about how much the United States was driving things. So in other words, what you may have heard from Prince Turkey or may have heard uh, uh, about Prince Bandar's comments about Syria recently is, is not new. It's been in the making for quite a while of the perception in Saudi Arabia that the US is not going to be engaged in issues that it cares about in the same way. And not only is it not engaged, America has often stumbled and done things that from the Saudi perspective and GCC perspective are deleterious to their interests. So it's a, it's a different measure. On Israel, um, Israel and Saudi Arabia, I said both of their behaviors have changed uh, dramatically. And Japan and Germany uh, each were taking steps that they would not have traditionally done uh, in, with the perception of, of less engagement from the United States. Um, so we can, we can jump into that. Um, I think the United States, and there was a great article in, in, in the Middle East press, is, is, is itself struggling with the question of whether it's a status quo superpower or a revisionist power uh, out to change everything. And if you listen to Barack Obama, uh, he's on both sides of the fence. You know, he's either a sloppy realist uh, or he's a, an idealist without conviction. And, and it's very hard in that mix to see where we are. So we're in a place where US foreign policy is constantly, in a way, hedging its bets because it doesn't want to be too profoundly uh, committed to either direction. We can uh, jump into that. I think that uncertainty be about which way we should move is perceived in a lot of ways in the Arab media as either weakness, indifference, arrogance, uh, neglect, um, or just uh, naivete. I mean, I think that, that all of those uh, run strong through the, the region. Um, I think that the that when you look at the U.S. administration today uh, and measure it back to the expectations of President Obama after the Bush administration, in my book, I believe the George W. Bush administration um, sped up something that probably would have happened anyway. They sped up global and American history to assure that the predominant role that the United States played in almost all things global uh, would come to an end faster, that the mystique of American power uh, would be punctured. And what do I mean by that? When superpowers in the world engage, engage the world in really four different arenas, militarily, economically, morally, and through institutions. 
And, and militarily, the United States showed itself to be quite overextended, and thus allies, forget enemies, but allies uh, in that scenario will count on the United States less than they otherwise would. Uh, economically, which was really always the fundamental secret sauce of American influence in the world, with the subprime crisis that became a global financial crisis, we really undid a, very, a great deal of our own mystique. Morally, uh, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, things that were seen in Bagram prisons, uh, warrantless spying on American citizens, all of these things threw into doubt. I don't know how many of you remember the Cold War, but all of those would have been impossible to conceive happening when you had a Soviet Union in place that we would point to and say, that's what they do, that we had to be the beacon on the hill that would look quite differently. And so I think the compelling you know, notion of democracy, human rights, respect for habeas, uh, people's rights and habeas corpus, et cetera, moved into a grayer area. You know, I'm not an anti, uh, I'm not a person that, that takes pride in talking about these things, but I don't deny them either, that this really affected those trying to secure democratic movements around the world. And then we got into a kind of um, interesting problem in the Arab world with the Arab Spring. And I think this has driven a lot of the media um, frustration with America and the media coverage in the Arab world is, is America on the side of those people trying to pursue justice, liberty, economic rights, women's rights, uh, their tribal rights, whatever it may be, whatever form of justice may be in, in, in throwing off um, totalitarian or dictatorship arrangements that have been in place for decades. Is America on the side of those? Or is America a status quo power that's really trying to keep in place you know, allies that have, that have uh, I think that that is the 900 pound question which President Obama um, has properly resisted answering because any clear answer to that other than the fact that we have to wander through this mess in an ad hoc way would be one, something that would be quite, I hear somebody maybe, maybe that's my time to end. Uh, I will get right to it. I, I think that this is the biggest issue because when you looked at Libya and the intervention in Libya and drawing together allies to come in, I was one that thought that the United States would have a hard time not having this become a large slippery slope into a much bigger footprint of involvement in the region because it's not, uh, we don't have many experiences where that hasn't happened. I was pleasantly surprised that, that the Western intervention in Libya remained rather small. But the nightmare side of Libya has turned out to be true, that the negotiation and fighting over who the real heroes of the revolution are inside Libya and this notion that you were going to get some Betty Crocker version of democracy to pop up were both naive, that these kinds of uh, uh, struggles inside countries are going to go on for a very, very long time. And, and, but nonetheless, the Libya intervention created an appetite in opposition groups throughout the region that if they just crossed the right red line, if they just got the right advocates, if they just got the right news media hits, or the, uh, the, the New York Times op-ed, or the photos that went viral, that somehow this would trigger American military and European military. Maybe we, somebody can help the, the phone. Just, just throw it on the ground. And uh, in any case, I'm joking. Um, I think that this question of the quality of opposition is a vital one. It's a really important one, neglected, I think, in our discussion because people are afraid of being, of offending or saying something politically incorrect about opposition groups who have very legitimate claims to try and change it. But the notion that that ought to be a burden that the United States or the West takes on for itself is something that I think 
uh, should be debated. And here in the United States, I find in my own uh, camp in this discussion, I find myself very conservative on that. I find the notion that we would easily lend U.S. forces, U.S. troops, U.S. money, and the very small stock of power that the United States has in the world today behind these things is something I wouldn't be very comfortable with. That there are other elements of statecraft, uh, cultural outreach, diplomatic outreach, and institutions that will you know, generate more secure transitions um, than, than we have today. And finally, I would simply say that, that uh, uh, this tension between idealistic exchanges and the idealism of, of groups and the expectation combined, I, I think everyone should have the right to revolution, uh, even in this country, but uh, with the NSA and others kind of listening in, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, but, but I do think that the, the responsibility of these transitions need to lie largely within countries and not uh, uh, without them. And I think much of the Arab media today, which is inflamed over Syria, inflamed that why is the world not doing more? Why is the world not helping the opposition take place? Is translating this into a notion that Arab or Muslim lives mean less to the United States, to Americans, to people in Europe, than other interventions in which we've engaged in. And I find that to be uh, disturbing, but I believe it is the perception of many uh, Arabs. But I have to tell them, I said, I don't certainly don't have that impression, but I don't want to line up uh, on the side of a fractious uh, Syrian opposition either. And we can discuss that uh, and what that means. But I think all of these things, because of the lack of clarity of US strategy and US decisions, and the lack of confidence in the United States about saying no and why we say no to certain things, has created and bred uh, uh, an alarming degree of, of negative uh, criticism and negative perception of the US. So I'll stop there. Thank you, Steve. Uh, first of all, when I was invited to uh, be in the conference, I asked Mr. Pat Mancino how many uh, hours I'm going to be talking. He said about seven minutes. I said, Pat, I'm flying 14 hours from Saudi Arabia, 14 hours back uh, to Saudi Arabia for seven minutes. Then I started debating, uh, does it really worth coming over here? But frankly, after meeting everybody and listening to the speakers, it's the best investment I ever made. Yeah. And uh, there is a little message uh, to uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. I wish I met you 20 years ago. Uh, I, uh, things would have been different. I don't... I don't mind uh, giving uh, short speeches uh, because we all know what happened to people who give lengthy speeches. I don't want to give examples. But before I came to Saudi Arabia, I told my wife uh, that I'll be in this conference, and she said, don't push your regular Arab news red lines. And uh, this is the reason she sent my daughter to watch over me and uh, make sure I don't do it. Uh, being the last speaker, this is why I said you go first. Ah. Being the last speaker, I saw a lot of uh, smiley faces. I wasn't sure, are they happy to see me or are they just happy? Okay, this is the last thing in the circumference. <laughs> but, uh, uh, again, the last speaker, I went from these notes to these notes because they practically said 90% of what I plan to say. 
So I'll talk about a media person, not a retired Saudi Navy Commodore or a politician or a businessman. So I had gauged some of the questions that I've been asked uh, in the outside, because in the media there is nothing, I will ask you a question of the record. There is nothing, not such a thing. Uh, the first question was uh, about the Saudi pullout from the United Nations Security Council. This was my article, or this is my article for today in the, in the Arab News. And to me personally, I think uh, uh, a lot of countries are unhappy with the United Nations. But, but this is normal. It's not something they are doing wrong or not doing right. Uh, the United States pulled out from the UNESCO and uh, the United States Congress refused to pay their dues at certain times in the United Nations. And they looked at it, even this was in the long time ago, but, you know, fine, it's, 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 uh, it's a de decision. And I think the Saudi decision is taken out of proportion. Saudi Arabia is pulling out f from a position that is going to be only for two years. But at the end of the day, I was very, very happy. I said, Saudi Arabia, you are very important. Everybody is talking about you. So I'm really, really uh, uh, respecting the decision of the, of the, of the Saudi leadership. Uh, the other thing is that I, I uh, talk as a media man, uh, is the Arab media didn't take the chances in the American market. The Saudi market for media is open to everybody. Yesterday, we heard one of the speakers who lashed at the United States for half an hour in his 10 minutes speech. How often would you find a country that, you know, uh, you come to their capital and you lash at them and they would laugh? So the American media market is something that the Arabs didn't really take advantage of. We are always media shy. Even Arab officials, they're always shy to talk to the media. So what if I made a mistake? I will correct it. And if there is a meeting, if there is a conference, this guy is a president or that guy is a representative president, why don't I go there? Why don't I talk to the other side? Why does he know more about me than I know about him? So it is better to face the problem rather than simply to hide. There are a lot of opportunities that the Arab media simply missed. Even in Saudi Arabia, I wrote an article, we need a think tank for the gas and oil industry. Everybody is looking at the Gulf states for the, for the, for the, for the oil production, but we get our intelligence reports and, and, and production reports from the outside. Why couldn't it be from the uh, you know, Saudi, Saudi media? So it is very, very important for us to be more open because the, the whole skies are open with the, with the, with the uh, new, new, uh, or the, uh, new te uh, information technology. Uh, one of the other questions that people always ask about, uh, about is the perception of the U.S. role in the, in the region. I also wrote an article about it, and Frank article. It said, America, damned if you do, damned if you don't. When the Americans don't talk, we want them to talk, and when they talk, we say, why did they talk? So we have to recognize the role you know, the role of the United States. But we have to put in our mind that the United States do have their own, their, their own interest. And one of the American presidents in the past said, long, long, way before I was born, American business is business itself. So this is how 
most people perceive uh, the United States. Uh, the other thing that the people ask are, how was the U.S.-Syria um, being covered? Uh, to, be, to be really frank, also, the minute the, the uh, uh, Arab Spring started in Syria, I wrote an article, Syria, where are the Americans? Because I knew they will ask about the Americans. But we have to be realistic. Since 1945, when Syria gained its independence from, from France, there was no relations between the United States and, and Syria. There was never a strategic relation between the United States and Syria. And, and Syria is different from Libya. Libya was easier to interfere with. Libya was two countries just before 1955, Benghazi and Tiroboli. 1,200 kilometers separating these countries. So the minute the revolution started in Libya, it was divided. And it was easy to, take, to, to, to solve the problem. But with Syria, the Al-Ba'ath was concentrated in more than one area. And it was very, very hard to actually assess it. And believe it or not, even if the United States interfered in the Syrian business, but what would happen if things go wrong? And in Syria, the worst is not over yet. The uh, other thing is the possible Taiwan US Iran uh, relation. Again, uh, I also wrote an article about Iran. It says Iran can live without creating an enemy. And having the, the United States being closer to Iran, we have to look at what does the United States want from the Iranians. Iran is a very rich country and has a lot of people who are having a lot of money. And believe it or not, they want American products. And can you imagine the Iranian market opening for US companies? Maybe I will not like it to, be, to, be, to, be, to see it open, but a lot of companies want to see it open. And in the, Arab, uh, the Gulf states, we have to adapt to the changes in relation between the United States and Iran. We have to adapt. Because shifting of powers do change. And things are changing by the day these days. Also, one more thing, uh, US role in the, in the latest uh, Israeli-Palestinian talks. Uh, I have always said it. And one of the articles I have written was translated to 12 languages and was republished in every site and paper that I can think of, from Sydney, Australia, to Vancouver. And after writing the article, I saw my name in one of the new books of Thomas Friedman uh, in two pages covering my name and my articles. Not because of me, but because when I talked about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, I said it straightforward. The Palestinian refugee issue has to be solved. Otherwise, there is no way the problem is going to be solved. It's not the settlements or anything, because anything could be solved except the lives of people. And when we come to, to, to the Palestinian um, uh, refugee issue, people are asking outside that area, how long are we going to support the Palestinian refugees? And things can change even in the United States, because there are serious discussions in the United Nations about who is being going to be considered a Palestinian refugees? Right now, there are pressure to have only the 1948 uh, 
refugees. But 1967 or any after uh, any other uh, refugees will not be considered uh, a refugee. And this is technically putting people outside in the street in one single day. And the number of refugees in the, Palest in, in, in the Palestinian camps is increasing every, every single year. So it's that the Palestinian issue has to be solved before actually doing anything about uh, the, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Nowadays, uh, also people asking me about, uh, about, about Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia right now, or the media in Saudi Arabia. When I talked to the, when I retired from the Navy, I was uh, asked to, to, to uh, be a columnist in the Al-Yom newspaper, which is in Arabic, and the Arab news, which is in English. Because when I was in high school, when I was 16, 17 years old, I used to write little articles in Arabic, so they wanted me to be back the minute I retired. And believe it or not, I asked the two editors in chief, the two editors in chief do I have red lines? And I was hoping they would say yes, because it would limit myself to write about sports or politics or, or social issues. They told me, you don't have any red lines. And I was under pressure, but at the same time happy. But we, as columnists in Saudi Arabia, we make our own red lines. And I have pushed the bar a little bit, and I was never been, uh, I, I never had an article that is being rejected uh, from, from publication. I'm still okay? Yeah. Okay. okay. So things in Saudi Arabia, because, because the, the uh, uh, or actually two years ago, uh, custodian of the two holy mosques, uh, King Abdullah, actually encouraged the, the editors-in-chief to actually give the columnist more rooms to write. And right now, it is very hard to hide anything. With the social media, with the internet, with the, with the, with the uh, WhatsApp, it's, it's, very, it's very hard. As a matter of fact, just, just uh, a few weeks ago, during the Saudi national, uh, national holiday, a group of uh, elementary students sent uh, Twitter messages to the highest leadership in Saudi Arabia because the weekend is a Friday and a Saturday. So they will be coming to school on Sunday, then they will be off on Monday. So these small kids sent these tweet messages to, to, to as I say, to the highest uh, Saudi leadership, and they get what they want. Not only in the elementary schools, all government uh, establishments, all, all universities were given, were given the, the uh, uh, the, the one-day holiday, which is Sunday, so they had Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday because of a direct request. Also, there was a very, very useful use for the Twitter in, in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia right now has the highest usage of mobile phone and, and, and social media in the whole world. A couple of uh, divorced and widows in Saudi Arabia sent a message to the king two years ago. They said, because of our social status, it's very hard for us to, to own homes. One month later, King Abdullah allocated 250 billion riyals, which is about $60 billion, to allocate lands and build homes for, for, for the needy. So this is how open the communication in Saudi Arabia. And there is one thing that the peop a lot of people in the West know or don't know, which is the relation between the uh, ruler and the ruled. 
And just this afternoon, I had very, very nice little example. Just before, uh, like a couple of hours ago, I went to His Royal Highness uh, Prince uh, Abdulaziz bin Talal, and he has very, very important engagement. I said, listen, my speech is going to be the last. I know it's going to be the last, and I know you are, you are having engagement. He said, what do you request? I said, I request your presence. He canceled everything, and he is right here. Believe it or not, I never met him, and I don't even know who he was before today. So this is the kind of communication, and this is what we call in Saudi Arabia the majlis. I'm not a businessman. I'm not, I'm not in the, from the rich elite. I, yes, I am from the middle class, but I met King Abdullah on three occasions. I met Prince Salman more, more than one occasion. The doors of Saudi Arabia in communication between the ruler and the rule are open. So this is what, what is, what is uh, th the things that some people in the West uh, really, really don't, don't, uh, uh, you know, don't understand in, in Saudi Arabia. Even the, the connection between uh, Twitter in, the, in Washington and Twitter in, 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 in Saudi Arabia. Uh, when uh, about like just a couple of days before I came over, um, uh, there was heated debates about the health plan in the United States. All of a sudden, in Saudi Arabia, there are heated debates about improving the Saudi healthcare system, which is free. And if you, there is no cure in the kingdom, you'll be taken to an outside hospital, the best uh, hospital centers in, 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 in the whole world. So one of, one of my cousins who is like 12 years old, he said something about healthcare, and they said, wait a minute, come again. Uh, let me smell your mouth. Have you been to the American Tea Party? I could smell tea in your mouth. So right now the whole world is connected. You can't hide from it. So um, as I promised, I'll not make a lengthy speech. I think, I think I'm all done. Let me just, the, the, these were two rich uh, presentations and I took some notes. I didn't, let me just pick up on one, one thing the Commodore said and it's kind of a personal yes. aside. You said if you met um, John Anthony 20 years ago. I wish. I <laughs> and I recall 21 years ago, John, I don't know if you remember <laughs> this, I was a, um, a student at um, the Arabic Teaching Institute for Foreigners in Damascus, studying Arabic. And they took us on a field trip uh, to Canetra. And uh, we did the tour, and we're sitting out there having lunch, and I'm looking off into the distance, and I see John Duke Anthony uh, also touring Canetra with people. And I say, hey, this is John. And so we went up and we had dinner, and it was really nice, and that was a great scene. And I, t and, and I told some friends it was so cool to see John Duke Anthony at Canetra in Syria and go out to dinner with him in Damascus. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah. And everyone had a story about running into John somewhere in the Middle East. <laughs> and they said, that's often where you could see him. And, uh, and, and it's a testimony to his commitment to the region that that's how he's known. And you know, I, I tell young people, and it makes me think of this as someone who's been a student of the region for so many years and have some responsibility now for a media site that deals with it, I say there are two things you can do. 
go there and learn the language. That's where you start. Now, I was never fluent, and I regret that. I was proficient. I could do interviews and stuff, but I tried, and I learned a lot just by engaging and trying. Our speakers mentioned, two, both of you said one thing that's fascinating, and it gets now I get to media, tectonic shifts, and we need to adapt. And there's so much going on, and there's so much media. You know, you think back, uh, when I was in graduate school, you'd have to go to the library and look on the shelf to see if the Arabic newspapers had come in, and they'd be a few days late. Now you go online, you can have access to incredible amounts of information. But is the inform how, how are we assimilating this information? How's it getting there with this great access, this great speed, and then these tectonic shifts? And, and I don't know sometimes if as an American, I'm speaking as an American now, we hold ourselves or the media accountable for accuracy and what's happening. And, and my experience, comes back to my point, is the only way you understand this region or any region is you got to listen to the people there in their own voices, in their places. There's really no other way. You imagine someone talking, saying they're expert on the United States who doesn't speak English and never comes here? I mean, we have a, a, opinion masking as expertise, and we let that go. Why shouldn't our media be able to nail these tectonic shifts and trends? We should. We should. Now, and I'll monitor, and what I tell you is why I believe this, and this is kind of our ethos, and when we started, was to get to the, what we call the pulse of the region in its own voice, which is why initially we set up massive translation capabilities. So we turn, you, someone tells me they're a good writer, they write in Arabic, no problem. No problem, goes up in Arabic, goes up in English, or Hebrew, or Persian, or Turkish, you got it in both languages, because that's the way you understand the region, is by listening to them there. That's all. And then by that, by diversity, and by these voices, and by commitments to good, good journalism and reporting, you can get these trends. And I was at a think tank before this, and it's so easy, maybe it's the internet, people have an opinion and it disappears and no one remembers. Guess what? I remember, I hold myself accountable, I hold my journalists accountable. If they're missing it, they shouldn't be on the payroll, I'm sorry, because they're wrong. That doesn't help, that doesn't help understanding, doesn't help policy if we're playing a role. Did we, in the monitor, we tried to see these trends, and we have the record, and I look at the record, the U.S.-Russia role and the management of conflict. This is, this is a huge development in the region, what's happened in Syria, and the implications of that. The thaw in Iranian relations. I mean, I think we were one of the few places that picked up in April, we wrote about how Salahi, the Iranian foreign minister, referred to a shared interest, he used, he talked about chemical weapons, he didn't say shared interest, as a red line. He used President Obama's term, that's April, he talked about that, and that was in, had something to do with where we are. Uh, the collapse of order in the Sinai, if you went back in Iraq, this is a big deal in Egypt, and the bigger deal. We've been covering this for a long time. 
the pressure on Erdogan in Turkey. Now look at what's happening on the border in Turkey, the engagement of Turkish forces with the ISIS. Who's watching that? I mean, I'm no Turkey expert. What do I know? I go there a few times. I've engaged with it in the region. Why? Because I got some of the best Turkish journalists writing for me every day. And when Gezi Park took place, I'm not saying they predicted Gezi Park, but boy, did I know the issues that drove Gezi Park. Not because I'm so smart, but because I got smart people writing for me, and they're accountable for what they say. And the issue we get into the Middle East, we haven't really mentioned it much, is the freedom of the press and the issues there. We, in fact, cover that, and sometimes we become part of that in the region because we try to maintain, uh, uh, we are independent, and we try to encourage diversity and, and accuracy. But the key thing is, in journalism and media, we as consumers of it should make ourselves accountable. It's not okay just to say this and then it's wrong. It, it matters. Reporting matters, journalism matters, and it's craft. It's not just, hey, what's on my mind today? It's craft. You, you guys who are journalists, you know that. It's a craft. It's something you learn, something you master. Just because you have an idea and you sit in front of a computer screen does not make you a journalist and does not make you an expert. So anyway, I just wanted to ruminate there for a few minutes uh, at the end of the day and, and picking up on some of the nice themes here uh, that were brought out. We have a question. We're open for more. We've got a few, few minutes left. Do you see a, a thaw, I think this is for you, Commodore, in Saudi-Israeli relations caused by their mutual disappointment of the recent U.S.-Iranian diplomacy? Well, it, it, is, it is very, very hard to gauge a relation between two countries that never had a relation in, in, in the past. But uh, no matter what you do, each... Uh, uh, happening in, in a country will, will reflect uh, will, will reflect the other whether you like it or not. For example, when uh, uh, the uh, atrocities increased in Syria, uh, we heard about Syrians going to the Israeli borders for treatment. But as for Saudi Arabia, it really, really never, it doesn't have a, a, a direct. Um, borders with Israel, and uh, as I said, we never had any, any relation with them. But what, what, would, uh, what, is the, uh, what does the uh, uh, future months would show in how close the Iranian-American relations and uh, how serious the, the Israelis about their uh, uh, view to, to Iran because it's, uh, we get confused, uh, confusing messages. For example, I wrote in the Al-Yom newspaper and uh, uh, the, the title is, is uh, uh, about Iran and Israel. At the time when President Netanyahu uh, uh, expressed his displeasure about the, the American-Iranian uh, relations, just one day later, Iran canceled a, a, a conference that was titled to be against uh, Zionism, and it, the, 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 uh, uh, the conference was canceled. So uh, Iran are showing uh, many signs, the Israelis showing many signs, and we are getting many signs from, from the United States, and we are still uh, you know, um, just, just waiting. So it's, it's very hard to judge it at this moment. 
Let me just add one other uh, fa fact that the questioner didn't yeah. mention, the, the Arab Peace Initiative. I mean, how is that being, being played these days in Saudi? It remains well, a key part of the, the, the Saudi program. Uh, again, I would, I would refer to, to some of the things I have written on my articles. Uh, one of them was the, uh, titled Delta Airlines and the Saudi Peace Initiative. Sorcerer's um, uh, website uh, uh, put it, uh, the airline diplomacy. And it was during uh, Delta Airlines or Saudi, Saudi uh, uh, being part of the Sky team. And there was a question about the Israeli passport boarding uh, different, uh, different um, flights. And it, it was uh, put out in, in, in the Saudi papers. So uh, Saudi Arabia had more than once, uh, especially during the time of, of uh, King Fahad, when uh, we laid the best plans for uh, a peace initiative. And uh, if the peace initiative by Saudi Arabia was implemented in 1982, all the Palestinians who are born in 1982, which would be in their 30s right now, would be actually having a better life. Uh, Saudi Arabia, also again, uh, King Abdullah uh, gave uh, uh, many positive hints and many positive plans for uh, you know, peace, uh, peace initiatives. But it, to, be, to be very frank, and again, I have said it more than once, it is only the Palestinians and the Israelis who could solve their differences. The Israeli-Palestinian problems was tried in Washington, and in Cairo, and in Oslo, and Madrid, and Morocco, and Lebanon, and Cairo. It just didn't work. Unless the parties actually sit down together, they will never solve their problems. Not, and not only the Palestinian is, is Israeli issue, even the Arab Spring uh, countries like, like Egypt or Yemen, it's the, 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 the people themselves are the only ones who can uh, uh, make their differences disappear. You cannot bring the United States and push a button and all of a sudden Shia are loving Sunnis and Sunnis are loving, loving Shia. It's, it, does, it doesn't work that way. This is why... It is, it is very hard to ask somebody about the Palestinian-Israeli problem if he is not from Palestine or if he is from, from, from Israel. Even age does make a difference, or, or the status of the Palestinian or the Israeli would make a difference. And a, a Palestinian without a family wouldn't, wouldn't make a difference for him to, to, live, to live in any kind of uh, uh, environment. But, but when you have um, kids and, and wife and... Uh, you're thinking about their future, then your, your views will, will be different. I think the only people who could solve the Palestinian-Israel problem are the Israelis and the Palestinians. This is my own opinion. Mm -hmm. Steve, there was a, a piece in the New York Times today about kind of the backstory on Syria policy. Uh, take, take that issue, and you talked a little about it, and you talked from two perspectives. One is... Looking ahead, how do you see this playing out for the Obama administration? Uh, does it fade into the background? Does it become uh, all-consuming? How do you see it? And how, and how do you think the region is, is uh, seeing when they read the, the article like we saw in the New York Times today about how Syria policy is, is being made? Well, thank you. You're a step ahead of me as I'm just off a plane uh, from India and uh, haven't had the enjoyment of reading that article yet, but I'm happy to talk about um, what I see as the, the broader back uh, story on um, the Syria question. 
Look, we live in an era of a politics of distraction, and we're all focused on Syria right now. I mean, there was one week where uh, I was trying to go away on vacation. It was, over, uh, it was before Labor Day, so I guess Labor Day was uh, um, the Syria chemical weapons issue. And before that, we had Egypt, and before that. So it went weekend by weekend by weekend. And I do a lot of commentary on MSNBC and CNN. And so when one of these foreign policy things explode, uh, I'm there uh, literally three, four times a day, whether it's in New York, wherever I may be around the world. And so these things go in you know, feast and famine. You're either on or off, and, and so you jump around. So I have a very good measure of what the media sees as the top stories. And so there'll be a point at which Syria was there. You know, the Edward Snowden story was an interesting case. I was on every single night for about a month and a half talking about Edward Snowden and the NSA. The White House kept this story alive by taking away his passport. Had they just let him go to Bolivia or let him to go to Brazil, it would have been, you know, become a boutique story and forgotten very quickly. Um, uh, so I think Syria will eventually do it. But, but from a strategic perspective, the serious stuff, what I think the unsaid, although it's now becoming increasingly said, and I think one of John Kerry's mistakes, but I think your former boss, uh, Chuck Hagel, uh, uh, largely sees this, is that the US strategy in potentially bombing and punishing and uh, uh, striking Syria over the August 21st chemical weapons use was an interesting uh, case study. And, it, and it, it's very important to look at the posture involved from the president and those people who spoke at the time. Very different than the earlier uh, uh, criticism of Syria for chemical weapons use, which Chuck Hagel announced. He was the one that announced it on the beaches of the United Arab Emirates. But in that case, they said, we're going to give small arms uh, to the opposition. And thus, the White House made a terrible mistake of conflating the internal dynamics of a civil war inside Syria with the broader major international norm and question of chemical weapons use. The second time they did, and people like me strongly criticized the White House for that, because they were neither going to change the dynamics of the opposition, nor were they really going to credibly respond on anything that, that it, was, it was a terrible response the first time around. The second time I was impressed because the president went out of his way to reverse something that he has now, again, reversed himself on. But he said, this is not about regime change. It is not about Assad leaving office. It's not about knocking down the government. It's re about responding chemical weapons. Now, why would you do that? What John Kerry was not saying at the point, but 10 days after, Susan Rice, uh, Anthony Blinken, uh, Marie Harf, and, 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 and others at um, uh, the State Department finally came out and began saying, you know, we're trying to change Assad's calculus on Geneva. That, that when he used those chemical weapons, they were not an act of desperation, they were an act of hubris. He viewed himself cleaning up the opposition and had largely won uh, for the most part, the civil war inside Syria or was winning. And so this notion that you were going to bomb to sort of change this, the question was, could you change his calculus? Now, why do we care about him changing his calculus versus you know, getting him out of the country? Ultimately, what you've begun to see from the administration is an understanding that if that state falls and collapses, Prince Saud in, in Saudi Arabia has expressed this to me as well. You have a real nightmare in the region, and you will probably have uh, a, a, nor, a, a horrible um, set of actors come in uh, and take over the state, and a second bloody and nasty civil war take place in which the warm and fuzzy opposition, whom we like to talk to, will probably be annihilated. So in that, in that scenario, what you are trying to do, but nobody wants to say, is keep Assad there without him. 
uh, whether he's there or not, but largely keep the Assad state, get it to negotiate a deal with the warm and fuzzy opposition, and they then together take on uh, the more Islamic uh, radical wing of the opposition. And I think that's what they're trying to make Geneva about. And so whether that was successful or not, not clear, the notion that we would easily sidle up and, and um, uh, become part of the, uh, the calculus that would help the Syrian opposition. I hate even using that term because it's such a diffuse and disparate set of actors in that, that President Obama always instinctively uh, felt that was the wrong way to go. There were very, very strong voices on his national security team that wanted him to move much more strongly in favor of that that, you know, what I uh, uh, don't mean to deride, but I can't help it, um, the opposition that likes to talk to the West. It's the opposition that's not talking to the West that is actually most pivotal and has the most traction inside Syria. And those were the people that I think would largely, in the end, be the heroes of the revolution. So it's been complicated, and, it, and, it, and, it, and the complication of it had to do with the discussion of red lines. One, President Obama's statement that Assad had to go, in my view, and I've been, it was kind of a stupid thing to say, because it precluded the ability to actually get on a track with the Russians at the time. We knew the Russians were going to square off on us, but he gave the Russians something that was too, that made it too easy to square off. That really for, uh, shut down uh, uh, issues. And I think discussing red lines in situations like this publicly only creates, we've seen uh, with many neoconservative groups and many others, many democracy activists, human rights activists, many of whom I respect their goals. But the tactics are once they see a line spoken about, then the dynamic is how can we rush towards it? How can we animate ourselves aspects of that? And a lot of people, and I you know, don't have the evidence, but one of the really interesting things in the cases of the first uses of chemical weapons, I had serious doubt whether the regime was behind those. I knew the regime had lost control of the chemical weapons, so there was an element of culpability uh, with regard to the use of the first rounds of chemical weapons, but it was very possible in an important scenario that elements of the Syrian regime may have been co-opted or may have been sympathetic with the opposition and made these available, but they didn't have the transfer mechanisms. The, the, the 12 or 13 cases, and so where did I go first? I mean, it's very hard to get uh, folks in the intelligence community, to be honest, but you go immediately to the signals intelligence. You go immediately, was there shock among the Syrian command staff by the use of those weapons or not? Was there any line of command authority about the use of those weapons? And if you go and you get uh, uh, access to folks that will be uh, oblique, but nonetheless largely honest, they will say that the kinds of evidence that we had for the August 21st side was radically different, profound, and robust compared to anything we had on the earlier cases. So it raised the question of whether the uh, opposition was there. We didn't handle that internally inside um, our offices very well, and I think that um, in our, uh, you know, I, I, I am. Uh, uh, one who would worry, uh, apparently more than Prince Bandar, about what happens with lots of weapons that gets into, into hands of people who want to uh, continue a, uh, a battle not only inside Syria, but move it around. I talked to the former head of uh, a defense attache, I don't want to mention from Saudi Arabia, 
uh, in a uh, European country, a prominent uh, person. And I said, what's your biggest fear about the future? He says, my biggest fear of the future is that these, uh, this instability in the Middle East ends because all of our fighters will eventually return home and we won't have anything for them to do. There is a, there is a crowd, whether that's real or not, there are these elements that are, I think um, are serious. But can I briefly, just very quickly, touch on the um, question you asked about the... Yeah, yeah, we're over time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's important and not often discussed because when, when Israel comes up in discussion, we sort of, it's taken too much for granted that the primary driver in the region of instability is either between Israel and the Arab states or between Israel and Iran. And I am one who believes, the more I've gotten into this, that Israel is kind of a fig leaf for other problems. That the real dynamic, and I think the Saudi serious strategists see Iran as their principal rival in the region. And I think the Iranians see the Saudis as their principal rival in the region. And Israel is a convenient scapegoat on the side. And so Saudi Arabia, in many, not a full thaw, but an occasional thawing now again that may freeze up, has been thawing for a long time with Israel. Chuck Hagel went over uh, six months ago uh, and did a deal with the Saudis, the UAE, and the Israelis, a huge arms sales deal to all three of them, uh, with them all winking and nodding and recognizing that they were all part of this tripartite, separate but together deal. And when you think back to what why APAC was founded, APAC was founded because of a concern over a Saudi AWACS deal. This was a remark, no one in the media was looking at this and going, oh my God, look what Chuck Hagel just did. This is a huge uh, step forward in the implicit negotiations and deal making between the Saudis and the Israelis. And I think one of the Saudis' legitimate frustrations with Netanyahu and the government is they, uh, uh, I'm sure that there will be many Saudis here that, that uh, uh, get upset with what I'm going to say, is while everyone is concerned with the plight of, of Palestinians, great, I am too, it's not an issue of strategic consequence unless it has echo effect beyond those people. And what's happened is the continual failure to achieve a deal between the Israelis and Palestinians, that's why I completely disagree with you uh, in a friendly way on the issue of this being there. Israelis and Palestinians have been allowed to fail um, uh, for, for too long because there were no, no drivers. But the, but the big stakeholders around them are paying higher and higher in costs for their failures. The strategic consequence of failure is becoming larger because what the Saudis want is not to, they, they've said they essentially hope for a normalization track with Israel if they ever do solve with the Palestinians. Is that because the Palestinians have been aggrieved and run off their land? Yes, in part. But the broader issue is it allows a different kind of security discussion in the region. Something like the ASEAN Regional Forum was in Asia, where you had nations in Asia that were at war with each other, hated each other beyond uh, 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 levels of enmity that you see uh, within the region. And nonetheless, they set up a security structure in Asia that allowed them to begin talking. And if that became something that would allow the Is Israelis, which are the regional superpower, to be part of an informal and non-binding discussion on security, that would really be a game changer. Uh, with Iran without necessarily confronting. It's a kind of a confrontational strategy with Iran without confrontation. And so I think this, that's where the Saudis have wanted to go. They've been hinting at it for a long time. So the thaw 
has been there a long time. So I count myself out of those. Uh, when I listen to Obama and Hillary Clinton and others say, we can't want peace more than the Israelis and Palestinians, I say, BS. We all need it more than they have been able to achieve. Their institutions won't be able to deliver in either case. So external institutions have to be blamed for the deal they'll both have to fundamentally accept because it's in the strategic interest of the region uh, to go there. So I, I just wanted to finish there. Well, we've uh, crossed our, our own red line uh, of 6.30, but we're going to, uh, uh, to wrap it up. Thank you, guys. Thank uh, you. That was a great panel. I appreciate that. Thank the audience uh, for, for hanging in with us at the very end. And uh, John or David, is there, did, did you want a closing word, or do we close the session? All set? Thank you.